You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated slash Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. Thought we would do something a little different this week. We had a guest get delayed, so instead of speaking with uh, someone we won't name, named Mats Volander, Jamie Lasanti is going to sit in, and she and I are going to catch up on some tennis news. This is the silly season of tennis. We've played the fourth major. Bit of anticlimax hovering in the air. Uh, before the year-end championships for both tours. But a lot of news being made, a lot of ranking points being picked up. I always feel like the fall is filled with events that don't necessarily get a lot of coverage but end up paying big dividends uh, later in the year and the following year. This is a time when players can amass big ranking points, when seasons and stories can develop, and we tend to overlook them. So I thought, Jamie, welcome. I want to bring you in now. Nice to have you with us. Um, Let's just run through some of these stories that have broken after the U.S. Open and Labor Cup. Um, and I'll start with one, and we can bat this back and forth, very much in the manner of tennis players rallying. Uh, I want to talk about Naomi Osaka, All right. who won the U.S. Open in very impressive fashion, but I would argue just as impressively has backed that up with a lot of strong tennis. Thoughts, Jamie, on Naomi Osaka? We talked about her a little last week, but we were very... Uh excited and happy that she didn't capitulate in her next tournament right after the U.S. Open. She not only did all of her media and everything she needed to do after the Open, but then she got on a plane and went to Asia, stayed committed to the tournament she was going to play in, and uh, she's been playing really well. Uh, I think it says a lot about her and kind of her coaching and what she's kind of committed and how she uh, maybe was not as surprised as other people were about her win in at the U.S. Open. Um, you know, the the confidence in her game and everything is is there. And you know, maybe she really believes that you know she's going to continue winning, and she's kind of proving that. 
We're recording this on Thursday, and the four most recent sets she's played, she beat Danielle Collins, very nice player, six oh six one, and then she beats Julia Gurgis, who remember semifinalist at Roland Garros, veteran player Osaka D Gurgis, six one six two. These are U.S. Open set scores for Naomi Osaka. Let me bounce something off you. This was a very unconventional Grand Slam win for Naomi Osaka. Not often the winner of the tournament is rendered speechless and cries on the dais. I don't know if you saw the interview she did with our friend Courtney um, for WTA Insider, but even with some detachment, even a few weeks later, she still clearly is very ambivalent. I throw this at you, Jamie. Might this be a disguised blessing? which in some ways are the best kind of blessings. No, might this, the fact that this U.S. Open title was so extraordinary, uh, both in good ways and bad, and she didn't necessarily get her full due, and I think the fact that Serena dominated the storylines, it meant that there was a limited appetite for Naomi Osaka on all the morning shows. She did not do the typical champion's run. Uh, she had to go to Asia. She was very popular there. Someone was saying that you know, there, there were literally thousands of people that were standing outside waiting for TV appearances. So I, I don't want to diminish uh, the fanfare she's received, especially in, in Japan and in Asia. But the fact that this was such an unusual Grand Slam title, this was not Sloan Stevens after the 2017 U.S. Open. This was not Ostapenko after the 2017 French Open. This was a very different type of Grand Slam win. And I wonder if this ultimately won't pay dividends in the sense that she's right back out there. This has not been six weeks on a beach uh, celebrating and doing shots. I mean, she's right back doing a different kind of shots. She's uh, she's right back out there to hitting balls. I agree. And I think maybe the fact that it's even more impressive that she, you know, went over to Asia and where, as you said, she was greeted with probably more fanfare than she was in the U.S. and still had those results. Uh, so I feel like that's even more impressive. You know, she didn't win a major, go to Asia, and then just bask in everything that was there, she's she's making it happen. And I think the one interesting thing, uh, you know, we keep going back to, or I keep going back to, is how Serena was and is her idol and how weird and, and kind of the weird mm-hmm. dynamic that created in the final. I don't... I'll give you another one there, which is it's not just Serena's my idol in the sense this is the player I emulated growing up, and I remember watching Serena, and I was a big fan. There's something very deep and very personal. These are two sisters. Naomi has, has a sister. The parents, not so different, not so dissimilar from Richard Williams. I mean, I don't know if you this, – this New York Times Magazine story I've often referred to. Right. They followed the Williams blueprint. So when she says, I idolize Serena Williams, that isn't Roger Federer idolizes Stefan Edberg and Pete Sampras. This is a much deeper sort of kinship. And I think that made everything that happened, the final, all the implications, all the sort of subplots, all the – through lines about gender and race. I, I think that made it all the more acute and probably made it all the more awkward and fraught when Naomi won the match. But it makes it that much more incredible. I mean, I can't imagine how she feels growing up, as you're saying, her father, you know, kind of saying to her, you're going to be Serena. Hey, here's the blueprint. Right? I'm going to do it this now. This is exactly, this is, you know, this is what we're following. As you said, this is what, this is the blueprint. This is what we're doing. And then she literally gets to that point and plays against Serena and beats her. I mean, I, I have like an overwhelming sense of, of emotion when I think about that, and I can't imagine how that makes her feel. I mean, it's like fulfilling, literally fulfilling a dream, fulfilling and your parents' dream. I mean, that's incredible. And the fact that she kind of has well, moved right along it. after that exactly. is, is really interesting. I mean, like we always talk about psychology and, and kind of the – the different ways I would love to read about the the impact of that on someone when you fulfill 
uh, a dream at her young age as well. Against the player who helped set this dream in motion. Uh, It's very strange. I mean, the other thing, too, is just the level of her tennis over the last six weeks has just been absolutely remarkable. During the U.S. Open, we were talking about Djokovic and how he had lost earlier this year and Martin Klijan and Taro Daniel and Benoit Paire. And we said, what the heck happened to this guy? He turned it around and now it's Novak playing as well as ever. Look at Naomi Osaka's results after she won Indian Wells. And uh, there there wasn't necessarily a whole lot that suggested she was not only going to win the U.S. Open, but doing so only dropping an average of two games a set. Um, nice to see Naomi Osaka. I think it's a really underrated story this fall, especially given what we've seen of how players dip off and need to adjust after winning majors. Um, I think a big, big story that's really sort of unfolding uh, in, in plain sight is Naomi Osaka's post-U.S. Open results. I was just going to look at her results, but... What do you got for me? Go ahead. I, 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 while, while you look for results... I can't. <laughs> go, go look for results, and I will, meanwhile, lament the passing of the drinking straw. Jamie and I are both sitting here in Sports Illustrated offices. We both have beverages in front of us. We both consider ourselves, I think, uh, environmentally conscious. We want to do right by the planet, but man, I miss a drinking straw. They don't have those in the cafeteria here. So uh, we have a lot of fluid and a lot of electronic equipment that tends to be a fairly uh, problematic marriage. Yeah, it's at least once a week, I swing my arm to go grab something and I knock over my cup and it's... At least we don't have laptops. So did you find your results while I was stalling? No, because the WTA website doesn't work. That's a problem. (laughs) Uh, That's a problem for uh, hopefully the new WTA Tennis Channel merger, which we can talk about briefly as well as another big news story this week. Um, Maybe that will improve WTA's technology because this is really, um, we we root for women's tennis. We root for the WTA. The fact that, I think I wrote this last week, and I'm looking, who did Kiki Birkins lose lose to again at the French Open? I can't quite recall. And that's basic, basic stuff. You go on other sports websites and you can find the exit angle of baseball players swinging at two strikes. I mean, it's really, uh, it's problematic. That's something the WTA needs to address. What do you think of that? Uh, but let's, on a happier note, um, I'm obviously very conflicted. I think I said if, if, if uh, conflicts of interest were uh, second half <laughs> momentum, I'd be Naomi Osaka. So discount whatever I have to say. But uh, what do you think of that Tennis Channel WTA marriage? Um, women's tennis on TV is a great thing. <laughs> I mean, how can you not be excited about it? You, I literally... After the U.S. Open ended, I we have TVs at our desk here, and so I have a little TV next to my computer screen, and I was a little sad not to, um, you know, have tennis all day, every day, like during the U.S. Open. And this whole year, I've kind of gone through, we have every access to every channel, sports channel here, and... It's really problematic. I um, cannot watch a WTA match, I so will say that uh, Tennis Channel is thrilled about this. <laughs> I think the WTA will be uh, well-treated as... The WTA deserves to be. I Look, I, I get this move initially. You want to control your own content. You have responsibilities. You have fiduciary responsibilities. You have responsibilities to a board, to your players. You want the best deal. I understand why the WTA might not have gone with ESPN and with Tennis Channel initially. But when they saw just how buried their product was, especially in the U.S., and you say, okay, well, fine, it's only one market. Still, if you're a player, if I'm a player agent and – very prominent matches are not being seen with my players. That's something I'm bothered by. So I do think that's being addressed. I do think that um, this is a win-win. And I'm happy for Tennis Channel for somewhat selfish reasons, but I'm also happy for tennis as an institution. I think this was uh, a good move, and I think WTA uh, will be 
treated right. I assume they feel like they're being fairly compensated or they wouldn't have made this deal. I think this is a good win. Um, all right, let's move on. Serena Williams is shutting it down for the fall. Uh, not a surprise there. This is um, a path she's, she's chosen to take in the past. I think that makes sense. 37 years old. Um, Roger Federer, Nadal, Djokovic to some extent. Uh, you pick your spots and you adjust your schedule accordingly. Um, I, I do, p- part of me wishes that there had been a bit more of a Serena Williams' presence after this. I, I, you know, we, we can choose our adjective. I'll, maybe I'll stick with embarrassing. This is not how she wanted to end her year. And she hasn't really said much. I don't know if you saw the Australian TV interview where she did when she started. She got asked the question. She clearly wasn't pleased. And eventually the publicist sort of said no more questioning. So as prominent as this final match has been, Leslie, John, if you saw Saturday Night Live, you see that, Jamie? I did not. Google uh, Leslie Jones. I mean, this was three weeks later. It's still making Weekend Update. And, you know, Coca-Cola executives have weighed in. And Hank Aaron and J.K. Rowling, which I learned is pronounced Rowling and not Rowling, has weighed in. You know that? J.K. Rowling? Really? That's how she pronounces it. It's like a tennis player. I uh, yeah. take my cue from the, uh, from my, I go right to the sauce. source. Uh, but anyway, everyone's weighed in on Serena Williams. Three weeks later, Saturday Night Live is still spoofing it. Um, a bit strange, and I, I would say a bit unfortunate that she hasn't... Um, Wait in, and may, maybe a, a combination of explanation, maybe maybe apology, maybe not. Maybe she still feels completely aggrieved. She's she's entitled to that, but I feel like everyone has had this conversation except the subject, and I feel like she has perhaps surrendered a, a little bit of real estate. And we're not going to, you know, now we're not going to see her to Australia. Has she in in the past in, in situations though? Has she taken the time to? separately comment on situations like this or has it really only been because she's playing in another tournament the next week or she as she gets asked and then sort of has to deflect a question i don't know if she's actually taking the time out to yeah it's a good point i mean after again and i do think i think we should put an asterisk here i mean this the, the kim clijsters incident that was nine years ago, and I feel like people are bringing that up, and I feel like there there isn't enough of an acknowledgement that a lot of time and a lot has happened since then. But no, nine years ago, she was not particularly uh, present or accessible or remorseful after that. But I, I also feel like there are a number of she, you know she's in a different part, of, she's in a different place in her life. She's been much more outspoken about social issues. I think that's all great. She's in a Nike ad. She has right. a breast cancer awareness campaign. I mean, all this is terrific, and I think it's really. An encouraging sign of her evolution. Clearly, she feels more responsibility, but it's just a little weird to me that there hasn't been any sort of acknowledgement, addressing, I do prepared think, statement. Though, in the trophy ceremony, I think when you saw her initial reaction in the presentation on the court right then and there, I think she probably would say that's when I began sort of my defense or you know explanation of what happened. I think she really tried to in the best way she could without honestly breaking out into tears because she was very emotional. There's a lot of adrenaline happening. She had just lost the match. I think she tried to explain herself. So I would give her a little bit of of leeway there and, and say that maybe that was that was her defense and she kind of just wanted to leave it yeah. there. But um like I think she's probably moving onwards and upwards here. As you said, she has breast cancer campaigns and everything that she has in the works for the fall and you know i just you know her her husband has been active on social media her members of her camp have been active and clearly this is still an issue that has some resonance and again when leslie jones is spoofing it in the middle of saturday night live it's still in the public consciousness um i 
well, who knows? Uh, all right, let's move on. Shall we? We shall. Uh, Labor Cup, resounding success. This has, I think in some ways, accelerated interest in these team events. I think there's a lot to unpack there in terms of uh, why in an individual sport these team events are so successful. I think some of it is socialization. Some of it is the, the players themselves. We talked about this with Paul Anico, and there's a certain camaraderie and esprit de corps um, on the tours that I think lend themselves to this kind of event. But it also, to me, lays bare tennis's ugly politics. And now we have, essentially, we went from no real team events, Davis Cup notwithstanding, to this one-week Davis Cup extravaganza, which will go into play in 2019. Madrid has been chosen as the site. I think it's very smart. Initially, we talked to Dave Haggerty, and he said he was going to put it in Southeast Asia. It seemed like Singapore. That, to me, made zero sense. Uh, you got to take it to a place where fans are going to be able to attend and where the host country has interest. So I think holding it in Madrid is um, I, it wouldn't have been my first choice necessarily, but I think it's a big step up from Singapore. I still am hearing, and I wrote about this this week, I'm hearing a lot of questioning about the finances and exactly. the validity, the sort of the, yeah, the, the solidity and validity of this, uh, this $3 billion number. I've heard it's much closer to $50 million. It's unfortunate. Uh, yeah. True. And ten- there's a history in tennis of groups over-promising and not being able to come up with the financing. So I think that's something to keep an eye on. But uh, we also have this ATP event, which you would think would have been sort of put out of its misery and that Labor Cup and Davis Cup would have conspired to have uh, sort of jointly kill. But it seems like that idea is still percolating. It does seem like there is going to be a turf grab in terms of dates and whether it's Davis Cup moving up to this September date to try to bump off Labor Cup. I mean, this, this is the stuff of reality TV, but it also it's crazy. really, it's crazy, right? I mean, anyone in tennis rolls their eyes and understands that this is the way we do business. But to an outsider, I'm always thinking if McKenzie looked at tennis, they would say, what in the world is this for a business model? I think somebody wrote in to the mailbag this week and they said something to the effect of, doesn't tennis understand that you have to go away in order for me to miss you? Uh, and I kind of agree. I, we start adding well, all I these totally, events, but... and we we don't go away, and then we expect a larger, more mainstream audience to pay attention. It's tough because if you 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 have Labor Cup attracting the big players, and you know it was a wild success, but the timing of everything and the fact that there is no off season, and you're constantly you can constantly turn on a, a TV and see a tennis match. You're, you're not no, sitting there. Look at the the, in the most dead popular the, uh, the most popular sporting league is the NFL, which has 16 games per team. There is a scarcity of product, and there is a long off right. season. I mean, the problem. I mean, Jamie, the problem is that everyone says the season's too long. There are too many events. We need to make people miss us. It's all sort of getting at the same point. And then somebody comes along with a big bag of money and says, exactly. "Hey, I'm starting a league in India in December. Who wants to play?" And if the money smells right, the money smells right. And all these players that gripe about the rigors of the season and the physical, you know, the, the physical price that they're asked to pay and the travel. Notice how many of them go play exhibitions. And um, our libertarian sense says, go, go for it. You know, if, if it makes sense to you, if you find value there, take the money. But the flip side of it is that we all may want scarcity. We all may think that, you know, there, there are too many events on the calendar, there are too many tournaments, there are meaningless tournaments, but as long as someone's standing out there with a bag of money ready to lure players, there will be more tournaments. Uh, but I but I think three team events in a span of 120 days is just, 
I think Chris Kermode, the head of the ATP, used this word. I think it's going to come back and bite him in the ass because I think his event ultimately would be the one that gets uh, that sort of gets the short end. But he he said it. This is. Insane. This is insanity, yeah. and he's absolutely right. Um, not that that has changed anything, but uh, tennis is I, – I guess one nice way to look at it is there's interest in tennis sufficient that uh, companies are willing to it's true. bank a lot of money here, especially it, uh, as stars are retiring. But the flip side is the adults have to, like – good of the sport is one of those phrases that triggers eye rolls and uh, – Shrugs shoulders, but at some level, you got to stand back here and realize how silly this looks from the outside. Um, all right, let's talk. Uh, here's a quick one for you. You know who won a tournament last weekend Tell in me. Chengdu? In Chengdu, we just talked about. Do this. you remember the name Bernard Tomic? There was a time where he was playing in the latter rounds of majors, and then um, the train went off the tracks a little bit. It's um, a good way to put it. Nice to see him. You know he had to qualify for the Australian Open. Keep in mind, this was before Nick Kyrgios. This was one of the brighter Australian stars. Right. And uh, a combination of faltering results and some highly questionable personal decisions. And I, I think there's a conversation to be had about how much do you blame the player and how much of it are the forces around him. Um, you know, his, his age is 25. I do not think that aligns with his emotional maturity age. And I think there is a question of who, who are the enablers and who let this happen and how much... Blame certainly some of it. We should pin on the player himself. But anyway, uh, Bernard Tomic, eight twenty five, is now back in the top one hundred. You know, the Sunday of the U.S. Open final, he won the Nadal event in Mallorca at the Nadal Club. Uh, interesting combination. Uh, Tony Nadal presenting a trophy to Bernard Tomic is interesting <laughs> bedfellows. But here he is, and uh, back in the top one hundred. That will get him into the main draw of the Australian Open. Wins a title off. You saw his reaction afterwards. He beat Fabio Fonini. Very tight match. Staved off four match points. Um, this was a nice story. I, I jokingly said golf has Tiger Woods, tennis has Bernie Tomic. <laughs> uh, that was meant facetiously, but um, as comeback story goes, uh, this this was a heartening one. Well, he's he was. I mean, at one point it was it was him, Kyrgios, and the Nazi Kokonakis that were all sort of this group of of young, you know, under twenty Australians coming up, and they all were pretty much in main draws. If one would play farther than the other here and there, and then. Um, Kokonakis hurt his shoulder, I think, and then Kyrgios, Kyrgios and Bernard Tomic, as you said, just went right off the tracks. And it was unfortunate to see some of his unleash of just... I mean, this, this train really... I mean, he yeah. was doing reality shows in yeah. Africa and his rankings was also in the top he 200. Beat, yeah, beating Fanini. Yeah, something, I mean, something poetic in that. Um, tennis, I'll tell you. I don't know how... How how they do that? Those tennis gods. The uh, I mean the the one nice thing about tennis that I always come back to is that it doesn't take much to turn things around. It's true. And we say it's the same with it. You know, it's why you're crazy to say, oh, so and so will never win another major. You know what? You only need to win seven matches. And by the same token, it doesn't take that much to bring your ranking from 200 to 75. And if you get your head on straight and you play to your ability and you avoid being injured, it's very easy to. Uh, it's very easy to get good in a hurry. I mean, the flip side, you look at Jack Sock. I mean, it's very easy to see your ranking drop like a stone. But I think if players need motivation, there are a lot of these stories out there where I may be going through a rough patch now, but suddenly Bernard Tomic, age 25. 25 ain't that, uh, right. ain't that old. I was just looking. He won the t- 2008, and two- 2008 Australia and 2009 U.S. Open juniors titles. Yeah. Interesting. Look yeah. at him now. I, um, I just hope that once he... Uh, gets back into the spotlight, he starts getting in main draws because of his ranking that he doesn't 
do anything in the spotlight to kind of yeah there there's a lot back on that there are a lot of forces going on there and there's uh there's there's a father issue um this is not a tremendous athlete i mean it's it's a unique situation but the flip side is uh that's nice nice few months of tennis for bernie comic and as much as he gets uh what's the aussie word that they use in cricket what does he get slagged for uh slagged is that right slagged slagged um, as, as much as he's disparaged when he doesn't play well, uh, we should give him some credit. All right. What, uh, Jim Courier resigns as Davis cup captain. Nice run for, uh, Jim. It's going to be an interesting Davis cup situation next year in the sense that from a captain standpoint, it's a very different drill than having to plan or not plan for, uh, for four weeks out of the year sporadically right, right. spread out in different parts of the world. But, uh, any thoughts on Jim's, uh, I thought successor? that your, uh, idea about maybe switching it up completely an isner player coach was particularly uh, what about a what about brian billick yeah, former that... podcast guest nfl coach <laughs> who loves tennis what about that did you call him we should we should uh see if he's interested yes you know slip him the the job link and i suspect he'd uh in in the fall of 2019 he might prefer to be on an nfl sideline but uh no i don't know Player coach not... is interesting player though. coach um ha- have they has anyone done that before um i I mean i know smaller nations have had it i know someone's gonna say oh don't you remember when boris back or some i don't know i i should know this and i don't offhand none none is jumping to mind but um that's interesting because i think uh, john isner Isner too has a certain like moral authority over these guys yeah yeah and it's a good person to have that position i mean i i he has said that he kind of wants to continue playing as much as his body allows and he showed us this year that honestly he's playing better um he's he's had a really good year He's also very good. He's. I've always said this. That one of the, I don't know if this is uh, an asset or a liability, but John Isner is a huge, huge sports fan, right? He comes into the press room and he wants yeah. to talk about Georgia football or the Carolina Panthers. But I think, right. um, I think, I think a few things. I think one, one thing is that gives players who are big sports fans they know the rules of engagement. He knows that when he. He knows how team sports work. He knows how team sports work. He knows what a locker room is like. He knows sort of what's cool and what's not cool and what a relationship with teammates is like. Um, I think it's it's worth looking at uh, something different. I also don't know what – I don't know in in a vacuum what precludes this, and certainly countries like Spain have already done it, but why we haven't heard more females being named. I don't think it's particularly gender-specific to say, boy – Jack Sock, you're struggling. We're going to play Francis instead. Or, I mean, I, I don't think right, there's, right. A, there's a whole lot of locker room interaction. We're talking about one week. And it's not like they don't have in experience. In Spain. It's not like they don't have experience. I don't think she wants With it. Cup, but. Could, uh, I'm not sure she wants it, but people say, well, why couldn't Martina Navratilova not do this? And I do not have an answer. Um, <laughs> all right. One more. You have to go. I have to go. One more topic. And that is, you know who was um, remarkably popular on my timeline? This last week. More so than when he was reaching Grand Slam semifinals, I'll have you know. Who's that? Fernando Verdasco. Ah. Do you know why? Why? If you haven't seen this video, Fernando Verdasco, I'm sure many of you have seen this, um, a regrettable clip of him waving away most angrily a uh, ball boy during a tournament. And this, I think very rightfully, drew the ire of many people within tennis. And I think that... um, you know, I mean, c- candidly, I've never, uh, Verdasco always seems to be a decent guy. I once uh, got stuck next to him at a fire drill at a Miami Marriott. But um, I think this, we, we can cut that part out. But uh, no, I, I there's nothing yeah, personal. Funny. He seems, seems like a nice enough guy, but I think this was a pretty outrageous. I think it's a really, to use the voguish term, that's a bad look. But I think this also, maybe this is 
the Jennifer Capriati Serena match that pushed us into replay. Maybe this Fernando Verdasco clip is what gets us to stop with ball kids and towels. It is unhygienic. It is so bad optically. It's just lame, for lack of a better word, that these athletes are wiping assorted body fluids onto linens and then handing them to these kids. Um, you want to get the balls for the server, great. You want to make sure there's six balls on the court. You want to swat the moth that lands behind Serena, the backcourt, that's great. I'm not sure ball kids need to be touching towels, uh, much less being treated the way Fernando Verdasco treated that poor make, kid. If we make Fernando Verdasco go walk over to the sidelines, he just had a... So here's he, what we're going to do. He's out of breath. We've thought about tired, that. He's tired, and he's going to have to walk all the way over, and then we want tennis matches to be quicker. Well, what are we going to do about A, that? we've got a clock. B, we are going to put towel racks on the back of the court. The ATP has already experimented with us. We're going to have little towel Next racks gen. on the back of the court. We are going to call them Verdascos. <laughs> so he uh, is punished for the rest That's of eternity awful. for the way he berated this poor kid. Oh, I, that, that, as some, I gotta say, as, as someone who has a child like age who's, you know, been in similar situations, and you know, my my kids have had these sort of brushes with celebrities. And when I remember Marion Bartoli signed, I don't know, some whatever was signed a tennis ball my son had when he was about eight years old, and. That made his vacation. This start to finish, this probably took three seconds out of Maria Bartoli's day, but she was very gracious. I she patted him on the head. She gave him a tennis ball, and the outsized impact that had, I will, uh, I won't forget anytime soon. And I think the flip side of that is this poor kid. He's he's ball boying. He's on the big court. Here's Fernando Verdasco, and to be dressed down like that in public. Oh, it, it just it, it but pains where, me. But where are we gonna put towel racks? What are they gonna look like? I'm thinking of like you go in it's Home a sponsor Depot opportunity and you like are it, standing in the aisle and there's chrome finish and brass finish and all this stuff and you do we get you can you be know, the a interior little design? Decorator. Like that's terrible. You can't have there's no place for a You put one bar on the baseline and a player, they've got twenty five seconds, they can run back. But but anyway, but board seems like a good drill for practice. We can you put the towel rack and you make the player the NFL quarterback. Oh Do yeah, yeah, really, it's good. Really, uh, you're really right. Footwork. Good drill. calisthenics. And then now you mu- you only have you know ten seconds to go towel yourself and come back, and that's like you know. And that's the returner. Think what the server would have three, to do. You know, three three sets. The um, what if they like NFL quarterbacks? Could they put the towel in their waist? Yes. No. Make it. Well, they work? they play with balls in their shorts. All right. Here's here's the point though. Could we please get rid of the ball kid as towel boy? Right. That you're not a cabana boy. I think you're the solution a ball boy. is still in progress. Um, all right, but I agree. We it's we got to stop gross. that. It's uh, it's yeah, it's it's gross, right? I mean, it's gross. It's gross, hygienically gross. I think it's also gross from sort of an elitist. It's the the, the optics ain't good. It's it's not, and it's it's hard for a player. You know, if in Verdasco's case, if he wants them to hurry up, or the sweat is going to fall and it's really going to piss you know him what? off, then. It puts you because now you are what I always thought about it is I would always want to say thank you to the person. And if you're in the middle of a competition and you're literally in between like a serious point in a match. Right. And you're going to be like, oh, thank you. you James, know, James Blake. Little girl. I always thank- I always remember this. James Blake, no matter uh, where it was in the match, he always he always thanked the ball kids. But but for somebody that is not as reflexive that they have to think no, about that, course, does that but... throw you off your game? Because now you're interacting with a person that in a match where you don't really want to be interacting with someone. That's how I always thought about it when I watch, you know, when you like sitting live at a match. You know something what? Something I always thought about. 
wipe your own sweat, <laughs> use a handkerchief, you have a loogie, put it in the <laughs> handkerchief. Don't make these poor kids handle your bodily fluids. Not that hard. Okay. Um, boy, on that uh, on that highbrow note, <laughs> uh, maybe Matt's Philander will uh, <laughs> stop by next week. But it was a pleasure running through topics with you, Jamie. Always fun. There's so much. We could sit here all day. And it's friggin' October. It's not even, uh, it's supposedly the downtime for the season. Um, no, but uh, enjoy the rest of the season. Again, I, I do think there, there's a larger point here about this strange indoor fall season where players make a lot of points and a lot of money and a lot of the storylines for the following year are set. So the casual fans may have tuned out when Djokovic shook hands with Del Potro with the net and the U.S. Open was over and the fourth major was in the books. But uh, for the hardcore tennis fans, a lot's going on this fall. Uh, okay, that does it for this week. You and I both have to run. But uh, thanks, Jamie. Thanks. This was fun. Thanks. We'll do it again next week. If people were so interested, where might they subscribe to this podcast? I can never quite recall. They can go on Apple Podcasts and they can hit subscribe so it goes straight to their notifications. And... They can hit us up on Twitter with some guest suggestions. Keep the suggestions coming. Have a good week, everyone. We will do it again in seven days.